But Father, as we come now to your word, we ask that you would once again show us your son, Jesus Christ. God, reveal him to us again. Give us eyes to behold his glory. We strike our hearts this morning, Lord, with fresh wonder once again of the majesty of your name. Father, as we open your word, will you penetrate the darkness of our hearts? Will you turn our eyes away from worthless things? Set our sights on you today. And will you enable us by your Holy Spirit in your word to see what we otherwise could not see ourselves? So Father, what we know not, will you teach us? What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. And do it all for the sake of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. So Father, will you speak this morning through me words that will edify your church and glorify your name. We ask you once again, Father, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Show us your glory once again today. We ask all these things in the name of King Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, if you're not there already, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible this morning. John chapter 17 is where we'll be again together today. If you're here with us for the very first time, last week our church family began looking at John chapter 17. This is known to us as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And last week we looked at verses 1 through 5. And this morning we're going to look together at verses 6 through 13. This is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in all of Scripture, and he prays these words the night before he goes to the cross. And what we're seeing over the span of the four weeks that we're going to spend here, last week we saw that Jesus prayed first for himself. Uh, today, in a couple weeks from now, we're going to see how Jesus prayed for his disciples. And then in a few weeks, we're going to see specifically, church, how Jesus prayed for you and for me. So last week we saw as Jesus prayed for himself, his request to the Father was, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And the request we see Jesus make today in verse 11 is, Holy Father, keep them in your name. It's a fairly popular trend with celebrities and athletes alike to not only try and trademark a specific brand, if you're famous enough, you might even go as far as trying to trademark your own name. Uh, tons of celebrities and athletes have done this. Everybody from Justin Bieber to Taylor Swift to Donald Trump, many, many others have, have actually trademarked their name and their likeness so that their name will be attached to places or brands or, or products. And the reason they do that is so that when we purchase these things, we won't just think about the product, we'll think about them. And, and this can be very lucrative business if you do this the right way, if you trademark the right things, that, that products you would think maybe have no attachment to a person they're actually receiving royalties for just because they've trademarked it according to their name. Uh, but even among the most famous, athletes, celebrity, whoever, uh, if your name is too closely associated to somebody else's name, your desire for the trademark and your application can be denied. This happened in, in the last few years. One popular example, famous example, was with Kylie Jenner. She was trying to trademark her name so that it would be attached to a specific clothing line, but her application was denied because her name, Kylie, K-Y-L-I-E, was too closely related to another clothing line, Kylie, K-Y-L-E-E. -E. And it was that tiny little nuance, it was that tiny little variation that her application for the trademark was denied because it too closely resembled another name. What we're going to see this morning in verses 6 through 13 is that Jesus asks the Father for his disciples to be kept in 
his name. That's his request. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Now, unlike Kylie Jenner, here's a good comparison for you this morning. Our Father's name is not like any other name. Our Father's name is its own unique trademark, and it could never be confused with any other likeness. And those who belong to him are kept in his name and are to bear their own unique resemblance. So in the same way that that check logo makes you think of Nike, and in the same way that Apple logo makes you think of Apple products, when the world sees us, they should immediately know whose name we're united by. They should know what name we've been trademarked by, what name we belong to, because we should bear the resemblance of the Father that we represent. So Jesus prays for his disciples, Holy Father, keep them in your name. So let's read again from John 17, verses six and seven. Jesus says, as he prays to his Father, I have manifested your name. Everybody say your name. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Jesus prays for his disciples to be kept in his Father's name. And what we see in verses six through seven is that through Jesus, the Father's name has been revealed. In his appearing, in his coming to us, through Jesus Christ, the Father's name has been manifested. It's been revealed to the world. Now, four times in John 17, Jesus references those who have been given to him by the Father. We saw one of these examples last week, and and a few of these examples, the other three are here in verses 6 through 13. He says here in verse 6, he says that a couple of times, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And he goes on to say, yours they were, and you gave them to me. He uses similar language. We saw it last week in verse two. We'll see it again in verse nine. And in every one of these instances, the language is in the perfect tense. So giving people to the son from the father, this is something that God did in the past. And we've, we've dived into this a little bit the last couple of weeks, but theologically, we know this as the doctrine of unconditional election. What it tells us is that God has chosen some to belong to him and he has given those to the son to be saved. And as we saw last week, in no way, shape, or form is this fatalism. This is not fatalism. God's choosing and electing in no way, shape, or form negates the responsibility of man. We're gonna see that more in the coming verses. Here in verse six, Jesus makes it clear once again that his disciples were given to him by the Father's unconditional sovereign election. And he says in verse six, I have manifested your name. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. The glory of God has been fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And all throughout scripture, we see that the revelation of God's name, the announcement of his name is also a revelation of his glory and of his attributes and of his character. To reveal God's name is to reveal God's glory because the name of God itself itself encapsulates all of the attributes and character of who God is. What Jesus is saying in John 17, 6 is that through him, through his person, through his work, through his character, the name of the Father has been manifested to the world. It's been revealed, it's been made known, and he's manifested his name. For Jesus to do the Father's work and reveals the Father's character is to reveal his name because his name reveals both who he is and what he does. And the most powerful example we see of this in scripture is Exodus chapter three. It's in Exodus chapter three that as Moses is out in the wilderness, the Lord calls out to him through a burning bush. 
And as Moses draws near, the Lord tells him, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. And it's there that, Moses, that, that the Lord calls Moses to go to Egypt. He says, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, to release them from their bondage and, and captivity and slavery. And, and here's the interchange in Exodus 3, 13. Here's how Moses responds. It says, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The Lord reveals his name to Moses as, as Yahweh. The Hebrew consonants are uh, the equivalent of Y-H-W-H. And they used to just give this in abbreviated form because there was such reverence for the holiness of the name of God. And this is so interesting that the Lord reveals himself as I am because he, he essentially announces his name in the form of a verb. That this, this language, I am, it really is just driven from the Hebrew term meaning simply to be. So, so by God revealing himself to Moses and saying very simply, I am, he introduces himself to Moses as I am, church, because our God simply is. It's just who he is. He's completely independent. He doesn't rely on anyone or anything else to exist. He has no beginning and he has no end. Malachi 3 tells us that he is immutable. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. He simply is. So for Jesus to say that he's manifested to God, he has manifested God's name is for Jesus to say, I am has been revealed to the world. He has been seen and he's been known. You know, it's often very wrongly said that Jesus never actually made the claim to be God. And this is completely an error because we see multiple times throughout scripture, but especially in John chapter eight, Jesus is accused of being demon possessed as he's talking about who he is and where he's come from. And as he's arguing with those who were gathered, he says, you know, your father Abraham longed to see me. He longed to see these days. He longed to see my day. And they say in response to Jesus, they're like, you're not even 50 years old and you say that you've met Abraham who lived centuries before? And how does Jesus respond in John 858, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This was his claim to be God. Church, understand, Jesus did not just know the great I am. Jesus Christ is the great I am. He is the great I am. He is the full embodiment of the character and the attributes of God. Jesus revealed God's name because Jesus is God's name. He is I am, and he's revealed the name of the Father simply by existing here on earth. Verse eight, Jesus goes on to pray. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So through Jesus, the Father's name has been revealed. We see second from verse eight that through Jesus, the Father's words have been delivered. God's character and his attributes are bound up in his name. And that name has been revealed through the person and work of Jesus, which means the words that are taught and proclaimed by Jesus are the very words of God. There is no disunity between the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son are in perfect unity with one another, and that unity is marked, that relationship is marked all through John 17 with the usage of the, of the language of give and gave and, and have given. Jesus says the Father gave him his disciples in verse seven. And now in verse eight, he says that the Father gave him the words and he in turn has given, he said, those words to his disciples. The Father gives the words to the Son and the Son gives his word to his disciples. And what do the disciples do? We see two responses in verse eight. First, we see the disciples received his words. 
Beginning of verse eight, Jesus prays. He says, I've given them the words you gave me and they have received them. They received the words that were given to them by Jesus that had been given to Jesus by the Father. And this is important for us to see, church, because contrary to modern progressive thought that is becoming so prevalent and popular in the church today, you and I do not have the choice between choosing Jesus and the, or the Bible. We have the choice of choosing one or the other here. His word is inextricably bound to his character, so to deny his word is to deny his character, and to deny his character ultimately is to deny him. You know, common criticism that you'll, you'll hear, I see this online all the time, common criticism that you'll hear uh, oftentimes of churches like ours that commit to this work of biblical exposition that have a high place for scripture in the life of the church. Oftentimes you'll hear churches like ours accused of, of, of committing what, what some would say is bibliolatry, and it's, and it's caught up in these, these pithy little uh, popular kind of one-liner sayings. People will say things that sound right on the surface, but when you dig in, really start to fall apart. You might hear people say things like, hey, we don't worship a book, we worship a person. They'll say, we don't worship the Bible, we worship Jesus. As if these two are somehow in competition with one another. And listen, like, just to be fair here, I think on the surface, like, we should, should maybe pay attention here. It's like, because, okay, technically, no, we, we don't worship a book any more than we would worship any inanimate object. Of course, we don't worship a book. But to say that, that we have to somehow choose between Jesus or his word is to completely understand both Jesus and his word. His word is inextricably bound to his character and to deny one is to deny the other. We cannot separate the person of Jesus from the words of scripture because it's a false dichotomy. You can't pit Jesus against the Bible. You can't pit the Bible about Jesus against Jesus because they're not in competition with each other. So we're called to receive his word. His disciples saw who he was. They heard him claim who he was claiming to be. They heard the words that he taught and he prays here that they've received his words. This is one of the clearest evidences that we are truly among God's chosen, among his elect, is that we gladly receive the word of God. But the disciples not only received his word, we see in the second half of verse eight, the disciples believed his words. He says in the second half of this passage, I've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. They received his words and they came to know the truth that Jesus came from God. And this is the key word that's repeated all throughout John's gospel. We touched on this briefly last week. All throughout John's gospel, the key word that's repeated over and over and over again is the word believe. It's believe over and over. John says this in John 20, I've written these things that you may believe. The most popular verse maybe in the whole Bible, John 3, 16. Everyone who believes in him will have everlasting life. And so this is a key word for us because once again, what we see in verse eight is that God's sovereign choice does not negate human responsibility. Look closely at verse eight. Jesus says in verse eight both that God gave the disciples to Jesus. So he elected them according to his sovereign choice. And he says in verse eight that the disciples received and believed his words. So we see both of these on display right here in a single verse, God sovereignly choosing and his disciples receiving and believing. So church, understand, God has not just ordained the end, which is our salvation and our coming to him. God has ordained the means, which is our receiving and our believing. These two are not in contradiction with each other. I want us to hear this because the, the pushback to this doctrine typically goes like this. And so, so we'll, we'll kind of create this straw man caricature of the whole picture here. We'll say, so, so I guess that just means we're all robots, right? 
Don't get a choice in the matter. Don't get a say in the matter. You know, God is, has, has already programmed the whole system and we're just, just kind of robots kind of walking through this whole thing with, without any sort of voice, any sort of say in what goes on here. And that might be a valid criticism if it didn't ignore the most important element of the gospel message, which is the fact, church, that Jesus Christ has come. You see, when you, you talk about God as if he's just kind of rigged the whole system, what you do is you paint him as this distant, impersonal, cold, uncaring, like he's just up in the heavens and we're his little puppets here on earth. But the fact that Jesus has come to us shows us that is not what our God is like. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus, listen, he, he faced every temptation to sin that you and I have faced and yet he never fell into sin. He's experienced all these things. The sending of his son, Jesus Christ, shows us, church, that our father has skin in the game. He sent his son, the great I am, the word who became flesh, he's come to us to reveal. God has done this in his goodness so that we could see his beauty, so that we could see his glory, so that we could see his majesty and understand who he is and know his gospel message and respond to it and believe. He's not distant, impersonal, and disconnected. He's not a cruel puppet master dangling us all by a bunch of strings. Through Jesus Christ, God has sent his son to earth to cut us from the strings of the bondage of, of our sin and to raise us up to new life in him. That's what he sent Jesus to do. And so, so please hear this this morning. No sinner will stand before God on the judgment day and blame him for their damnation. The only reason anyone dangles by their strings of slavery to sin is because they want to. The word has become flesh. The great I am has come to us. Our God is not cold and cruel and impersonal. And we, as we hear this word, have a responsibility to keep the word and to receive it and to believe it when we hear it. This is the good news of the gospel for us this morning. God has sent his son to cut you from your strings and to empower you by your, his Holy Spirit to raise you to new life so that you can walk in faithfulness and obedience to him. And Jesus reinforces this promise in verses nine through 11. He goes on to pray this. He says, I am praying for them. And again, he draws a distinction for his disciples, not for the entire world. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. And here's the request. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So through Jesus, the Father's name has been revealed. We have seen that the Father's words have been delivered. And third, through Jesus, we see that the Father's chosen have been secured. This is such good news for us this morning. Church, take comfort in what he prays here for his disciples. You know, verse nine, he intercedes specifically for his disciples. And, and again, a couple weeks, we're gonna see specifically how he prays for you and I. This is what he's praying for those who are gathered with him in this moment. But take comfort in these things. All mine are yours, all yours are mine interceding for his disciples, and he prays, I am glorified in them. This ties back to where we were last week in verses one through five. What was his first request? Father, what did he want the father to do? Glorify your son. Glorify your son. And why did he ask for the son to be glorified? So that he could do what? So that he could glorify the father. And now he's saying that, that he's even glorified through his own disciples. And he's glorified by his own disciples by doing what we just saw a moment ago, by keeping and receiving and believing his word. This brings God glory. 
This brings glory to his name when we keep his word, when we love his word, we treasure it, we receive it, we believe it, we submit ourselves to it. But then in verse 11, Jesus makes a little bit of a turn here. And this is what he prays. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but I'm coming to you. So this is what Jesus is doing here. This is the night before he goes to the cross. Could you, could you think about this scene for just a moment? Can you imagine being one of his disciples in this moment? Sitting at the table with him, you've followed him for three years. He's been saying for three years, this day is coming, the hour is coming, and now the hour has come. The very next day, he is going to go to the cross of Calvary, and he's gonna die for their sins. Can you imagine being in the same room listening to Jesus pray for you? Because that's what they had in this moment. And so he turns his attention here. He says, I'm no longer in the world. They're in the world, and I'm coming to you. From the very beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus was preparing his disciples for the time that he would no longer be with them. This really is the work of discipleship. It's, it's raising someone up for the express purpose of sending them out. And that time has now come. In John 15, he promises them the Holy Spirit who would remind them of everything that he taught them and, and would empower them to obey everything he was giving them to do. So he prays, Father, I'm coming to you, but they're staying here. So this is his request. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Now, I think I've already read John 6, 37 like three times since January 1st this year for, for different reasons. But church, the promise is so good that it just continues, bear, it just bears repeating for us every single week. This is what Jesus had already preached in John 6, 37. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So follow me here. In John 6, Jesus has already promised to keep those who belong to the Father. So listen, when he prays in John 17, Father, keep them in your name, Jesus isn't praying for something that could happen. Jesus is praying for something that's absolutely going to happen. He's praying with the confidence of the promise that he has already preached. All that the Father has given the Son will keep the Father's name, and we're going to do it because the Son is going to keep us in his name. Remember, go back to the end of John 16. Jesus had already warned his disciples about what was coming, John 16, 33. He told them, he warned them, in this world, you're gonna have trouble. You're gonna have trouble. He knew what was coming for them. Jesus knew that his disciples were gonna be persecuted. He knew that they were gonna be hated. He knew that they were gonna be martyred. He knew that they were gonna be executed. This is what we learned from church history. That when you look at the 12 original disciples, take Judas out of the picture after he betrays Jesus, 11 remaining disciples. Church history and tradition teach us that of those 11 remaining disciples, 10 of them died a martyr's death, and John probably should have because they tried to kill him by dipping him alive in burning oil. Jesus knew what was coming, and so he's interceding for them. Father, keep them in your name. This just calls back to the Psalms. How many times we see it in the Psalms over and over and over again, how God's name is a strong tower and a fortress for us. So he's interceding for them, keep them in your name. And as he prays for them to be kept in his name, he prays in verse 11 for the Father to help them remain as one, even as he and the Father are one. Now, I wanna, wanna call a time out here because this is the verse in John 17 that is most often quoted, but this is also the passage in John 17 that is also most often misquoted. Church, please understand, when Jesus prays, Father, let them be one, he wasn't praying for some sort of superficial, surface-level unity. 
He wasn't praying in, in this, that kind of what's known in the world, sort, sort of this, this let's all just get along kind of mentality. Let's just, let's just kind of put things to the side. Let's not divide over doctrine. Let's, let's not divide over big issues. No, 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 Jesus absolutely wants us to divide over doctrine. Listen to the full context of John 17. He doesn't just pray, let them be one. He says, keep them in your name. It's not that we're one in a superficial pretended tolerance. No, we're kept in his name, and we'll see it in a couple weeks, how he prays, sanctify them in truth. So the moment we're no longer united in his name, the moment we're no longer united in his word, we have absolutely no claim on the promise and prayer of unity here. Our unity hinges on whether or not we are kept in his name. And the way we know that we are kept in his name, church, is that we're keeping his word. That's the unity Jesus is praying for here, that we would be kept in his name and we are kept in his name, one, because he's holding on to us, but two, because we're holding on to his word. You know, much of um, World War I was marked by the strategy that was known as, as trench warfare. Um, it was uh, semi-effective. You know, history has taught us that, that after years of trench warfare, the lines really barely moved um, after four years of this. And so if you don't know about trench warfare, this was a little history lesson here. From 1914 to 1918 in World War I, thousands of miles of trenches were dug all across the European soil. And, and there, the, the opposing sides would literally dig in that they would dig the trenches, they lived in the trenches, and, and they were absolutely horrific conditions. There were heavy rains, and sometimes the trenches would fill up with as much as two, three feet of water. And because of that, you know, sometimes in the water, it was mixed with like human feces and, and also blood or dead bodies or dead animals. And they were absolutely horrific conditions. But, but in case you can't imagine something worse than that, there was actually something worse than that. There was something worse than the trenches, and it was the space in between the trenches that was known as no man's land. Because out in no man's land, there was absolutely no hope of survival. The opposing sides would, would watch the, the lines all day long, just waiting for somebody to emerge. Only under the rarest of circumstances would you emerge out of, out of uh, your trench. And about the only reason you would do that is either because you were retreating in the other direction or you were attacking the opposing side. There was one British soldier who described no man's land like this. He said, no man's land was like men drowning in shell holes already filled with decaying flesh as the bullets flew around them. There was no hope of survival in no man's land. So if, if you didn't make it to the enemy's side in, in time, if you, if you were able to make it across in one piece, or if you didn't retreat back to your own trench in time, there was absolutely no hope of survival in no man's land because they would watch no man's land all day long and they shot anything that moved. There's no hope of survival in this. And I wanna paint this picture for us this morning in light of what Jesus prays for in John 17 because of this. There's so many, and you need to pay attention to this, there are so many professing Christian leaders, there are so many professing Christian churches that are trying to exist in the 21st century in spiritual no man's land, and listen, they're not gonna survive. The default position in the name of unity has been to not take a position, trying to live in this space kind of between the, the world and the church, thinking that we can kind of have a foot in both and, and we can appease both. And listen, if you try to live in that faith, in that space, your faith is gonna be destroyed. There's no surviving in this. Jesus is not calling us to superficial unity and harmony. He's calling us to unity as he keeps us in his name and as we hold tightly to his word. You know, it was the early church father, Augustine, who famously said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And to that, I think we should all say amen. But if we were to rewrite that mantra by the modern church, I think it would sound like this. If the modern church rewrote it, it would sound like in essentials, liberty, in non-essentials, charity, and in all things, unity. 
And that is a total misrepresentation of what Jesus prays in John 17. Church, please hear me this morning. It will never, ever work. The church that compromises unity in substance for the sake of unity in appearance will not survive. Jesus prays for his disciples to be kept as one in the Father's name, but we're only kept as one in the Father's name when we're united as one by the Father's word. And Jesus reinforces this in verses 12 and 13. He prays, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have chosen me, I've guard, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So fourth and finally this morning, we see that through Jesus, the Father's word has been fulfilled. And in the course of verses 12 and 13, we see that there are two primary reasons from this passage that the Father's word has been fulfilled. We see first in verse 12 that the Father's word has been fulfilled for the judgment of his enemies. Jesus says in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, the person Jesus is speaking to here is Judas, who's about to go betray him. And this is a good example for us because as we've seen all along the way through John 17, once again here, we see the intersection of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God in his sovereignty had already marked out this day. We see it all the prophesied in the Old Testament. God had already marked out this day. Scripture prophesied that there was going to be one who came and betrayed the Messiah. The scripture that Jesus is referencing here is Psalm 41, where David writes these words. He says, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise up again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Now we know that Psalm 41 was prophesying about Judas because in John 13, 18, Jesus quotes Psalm 41 in reference to Judas. This is what Jesus says in John 13. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. So he draws a distinction here between G Judas and the rest of his disciples. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Listen, he says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So we see them both on play. There's God's sovereignty, scripture must be fulfilled, and there's human responsibility. My, he, lift, he has lifted his, his heel against me. So, so Jesus fulfills God's word for the purposes of accomplishing God's judgment. But please don't miss the second half of verse 13 this morning. Jesus doesn't just fulfill the Father's word for the judgment of his enemies. What this passage shows us this morning is that Jesus fulfills God's word for the joy of his people. Listen to verse 13. Such a precious promise for us today. Jesus says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Everybody say joy this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rock somebody's world here for a second. Did you know that you're allowed to be a Christian and like be happy about it? I and mean, we should be the happiest people in the world. The father sends the son, the son shares the word, he accomplishes the purpose of the scriptures so that our joy, that his joy will be fulfilled in us. He wants us to experience the fullness of joy. He wants us to know this. And listen, I think it's important for us to hear today because right, sometimes God's word makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? 
Sometimes we hear things that, that press against our sin. Man, as we talk about someone's sovereignty and, and choosing and electing, man, that, that just grates against our autonomy and against our independence. The Bible presses against our sin. The Bible warns us of judgment. And, and there's just so many places that, that the word of God makes us uncomfortable. And yet, even in giving us warnings, even in giving us judgments, even in rebuking us of sin, the reason the Lord does it all through his word, church, is for our joy. It's because he wants us to know the fullness of joy. Jesus has not just fulfilled the Father's words for his purposes and judgments. He's done it for the purpose of our joy. What Jesus wants more than anything for you today is for you to cling to who he is and what he calls us to do through his word so that you can experience the fullness of joy and life in him. As many of you know, my grandfather is 92 years old, had been in steady decline for the last year and uh, it was uh, Friday morning around 1.30 uh, this past weekend that my grandfather uh, went to sleep and then without struggle or suffering, uh, woke up in the arms of Jesus. And, um, you know, it's amazing. Again, you talk about God's sovereignty, how um, I was already planning to share this this morning and then it just happens to be, you know, a couple days after his passing here. Um, he'd taken a pretty sharp decline over the last week. And last weekend I was talking to my uncle and, um, and, and, over, uh, and he told me this incredible story and it, it really just struck me because over the last couple of years, my grandfather's mind had really been fading. Um, he really didn't, re- he only, my, my dad passed away about 12 years ago and then uh, my uh, uncle was his only other child, his only other son. And, and, and so you know, he was struggling to even recognize my uncle. He was struggling to recognize, remember us. And, and as his memory faded, um, and he had, a, he had a brain tumor that was, it was non-malignant, but it was a, it was a brain tumor nonetheless. And he, he really couldn't even just piece sentences and words together. And, and so hospice has been you know, increasingly frequent for them over the last few weeks in particular. And, and my uncle told me this incredible story where just a, a couple weeks ago, one of the hospice nurses had, had come to their house and was helping out with things and having some conversation with my grandfather. And after just a little bit of you know, just back and forth friendly conversation, my grandfather looks at this nurse and he just says, ma'am, are you a Christian? And, and, and so, you know, a little bit of a hush went, went across the room and, um, and she just very politely responded to him. She just said, no, sir, I'm not. And, and my uncle said my grandfather just looked at her and just with tenderness in his eyes and compassion in his voice, he just looked at her and said, oh, the joy you're missing. And my uncle said for the next few minutes, my grandfather, who could not remember him, who couldn't remember us, who couldn't hardly put a sentence together, he perfectly articulated the gospel message, both its warning of judgment and its promise of joy. Because that's what Jesus wants us to know. He wants us to know the fullness of joy. And so listen, if you are here today and you don't claim to be a Christian, like you're not a follower of Christ, I would just say, number one, like I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you are willing to come in here and, and hang out. You know, there, there's a lot, of, a lot of bad press about Christians and like that's a bold move to come here. And so I don't wanna make you too uncomfortable. But if I could, if I could just gently nudge on you today if you don't claim to be a Christian, if I could just give you a gentle nudge that I hope you'll receive today in love, if you're not a Christian, I just wanna tell you all the joy you're missing. God wants you to know joy. He wants you to know the fullness of joy. He wants you to experience the fullness of joy through faith in his name. This is what Psalm 1611 is all about. The psalmist wrote these words. The psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life, which God does for us through his word. And then there's the connection between his word and his character and who he is. He says, in your presence, read it with me. What's it say? In your presence is what? It is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what God desires for us. He wants us to know the fullness of joy. He does not want you, if you profess his name, to be a miserable Christian. 
He wants you to know the fullness of joy. If you're not a follower of Christ, he wants you to see this is the missing piece for you. What you're trying to seek in the world, the joy you're trying to find in the things of this world, the fleeting happiness of the world, you're not gonna find it in anything, but you can find it in him. And he wants you to know it and know it to the full. That's why his words have been fulfilled. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great book, uh, Spiritual Depression. It's an older book, but I've actually just read it for the first time over the last couple of weeks. And, and he has this great reflection. He says of Jesus, he is our joy and our happiness, even as he is our peace. He is our life, he is everything. Pay attention to this. So avoid the incitements and the temptations of Satan to give feelings this great prominence at the center. Put at the center the only one who has the right to be there, the Lord of glory, who loved you, that, who so loved you that he went to the cross and bore the punishment and the shame of your sins and died for you. Seek him, seek his face, and all other things shall be added unto you. When Jesus prays for us to be kept in the Father's name, this is simultaneously a prayer for you and I to keep the Father at the center. Listen, if you've been following Jesus for about five minutes, you know that this is true. Listen, there's gonna be some days you don't feel the joy. There's gonna be plenty of days you don't feel the hope. There's, there, there's gonna be plenty of days you don't feel confidence in the promises. There's gonna be plenty of days where you don't, you don't feel like things are true. And man, you're just, you're just overcome and you're wrecked with, with your doubt. Now, I just wanna speak this to us this morning because I'm afraid that many of us are, are trying to baptize our faith in, in some secular therapeutic thought that just does not square up with the gospel. Please receive this in love this morning. If you put your feelings at the center of your life instead of your father, you will never know the fullness of joy. If you allow your feelings to rule supreme, you will never know the fullness of joy. Jesus prays for us to be kept in the Father's name, and as we're kept in the Father's name, we keep the Father at the center of our lives, and it's from keeping him at the center that we will know the fullness of joy. If you allow your feelings to dominate you, you'll never know this joy. We have to submit our feelings. Listen, guys, my, my grandfather in a very small family died two days ago. You think I'm really feeling it this morning? But that's the beautiful thing about the joy that we find in Christ. It's not contingent on our circumstances. It's not fleeting like the happiness of this world. And it's something we can experience when our Father is at the center, when we can live in the confidence of knowing that he's keeping us as we keep fast to his word. When he is your center, you will know the fullness of joy. So I just want to give us two really simple challenges in light of this text as we close out our time this morning. Here's the first challenge for us today as we go. First challenge for us is to receive and keep the words of Jesus. Receive and keep the words of Jesus. Jesus prayed to his father. His disciples had kept his words. They received his words and they believed his words. And just in light of my grandfather's example, I just wanna ask you a probing question this morning. What are the things that you will remember when you can't remember anything else? When you no longer recognize your children, when you no longer recognize your grandchildren, when you no longer recognize your friends, when you're struggling to put a sentence together, what are the things that will effortlessly flow from your mouth? By God's grace, let's, let, let's be people who are so saturated by the gospel of Jesus Christ that when we can't remember anything else, we can still remember Jesus because we've known him in the fullness of joy. So it touches us on an individual level, but even as a corporate level, church, we have to understand that our faith cannot exist in no man's land. It can't. Jesus isn't praying for superficial unity and a pretended tolerance here. Christians and churches whose default position in the 21st century is to not take a position will not survive the landscape. We won't. 
when we fall, that this is difficult truth for us to recognize. When, when churches fall, when leaders fall, when they compromise the truth of God's word, they move off to the side, they push the Bible off to the side, that they say clever things like we need Jesus, but not the Bible, things that simply do not square up with the Bible. When we see these things happen, we have to recognize, as difficult as it is, it has happened because they never belonged to Jesus. They were never given to him by the Father because those who have truly been given from the Father to Jesus evidence this by holding fast and tightly to his word. Jesus will keep those who belong to him, and we can know that we are kept by him when we keep and receive and believe his words. But listen, even as we receive and keep the words of Jesus, as we hold to it tightly, we cling to it tightly, even as we do this second challenge is to believe and know that you are kept by Jesus. Oh, this is such good news for us this morning. And man, Blake just spoke to this so very well at the opening, for those of us who are in the room, the opening of our worship time this morning. And please, please hear this this morning because I, I fear that this is where, where some of you are. You really think you're just gonna white knuckle this thing to the finish line. And listen, yes and amen, we are called to cling tightly to the word of God. We're called to keep it and to receive it and believe it. But friend, please understand, you're not gonna make it to the end because you have kept God's word. You and I are gonna make it to the end because Jesus Christ has kept us. It's not gonna be because we held out and because of our strength and our power. Some of us are just never gonna know who Jesus is until our pride can be broken down. You're not gonna will your way to the end. You're not gonna will your way to the goal line in the finish line. You're only gonna make it there because Jesus has carried you and he's kept you. And that is the promise that Jesus gives to us this morning. When he prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, he's not praying for something that might happen. He's praying for something that's going to happen. We're gonna make it to the end because Jesus is gonna take us to the end. It's not gonna be your willpower. It's not gonna be your work. It's not gonna be your stubbornness. It's not gonna be your pride. And in fact, until your pride and your willpower and your stubbornness are laid down at the foot of the cross, you will never understand the joy of knowing that you are carried and kept by Jesus Christ. We cling tightly to his word, but as you cling tightly to his word, know that it's him who's clinging tightly to you. Church, make no mistake. You look at where our culture is going right now, where our world is going, there's gonna be some really, really difficult days ahead. There's gonna be some days that looks really, really ugly. Our, our enemy hates us. We're gonna face the hatred of the world. We're gonna be rejected. We're gonna suffer. Listen, some of us may have the privilege of losing our lives for the sake of the gospel, but let's not forget how this story is going to end. The difference between us and those trench soldiers from World War I is that you and I don't advance forward with the fear that we might lose. You and I advance forward with the confidence that Jesus has already won. And this just gives us so much confidence to hold fast to his word because we know what the outcome is. We know what the final result is going to be. We're going to keep his word, and as we keep his word, he's gonna keep us in the Father's name. And because he's keeping us in the Father's name, he's gonna keep us to the very end. So you bow your heads with me as we close this morning. So Holy Father, keep us in your name. Keep us in your name. Help us to keep and to receive and to believe your word so that we can know the fullness of joy which is found in life in you. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to show us who you are. 
Thank you that your glory has been made known to us. It's been manifested among us. Don't allow us to be blind to this. Will you break down our hardened hearts? Will you open our blinded eyes? Would darkness transition to light so that we can see Jesus for who he is? Father, today I pray for every person in this room, for those who are yours, who belong to you, but are struggling to believe they're being kept by you. Will you renew their faith today? Renew their joy and their confidence in you today? And Father, for those who don't belong to you, would you draw them to you today? Help them to see the joy they are missing that can be found in knowing you. Holy Father, keep us in your name. Keep us in your name. Help us to keep your word.